0: I do not like to travel. <laughs> and in my head, there's all this speed going on the whole time. I mean, you know, it, that's really the way I approached it. It's just an emotional response.
1: And briefly, having now dabbled in science in this way, any plans to return?
0: That's right. I'm, I'm going to be collaborating with uh, Dr um, Adam Malouf, who is a geologist, funnily enough. And uh, Martin Koth and I are planning another project further down the line.
1: Okay, we'll bring you back for that as well then. Dr Martin Cove, Lola Perrin, thank you both. As Tom Waits would nearly say, the piano has been thinking, not me. I'm not exactly sure what the ticket situation is like, but Lola and, to a slightly lesser extent, Martin, will be performing, although not duetting, at 6.30 on August 5th at St Mary Magdalene in Munster Square, London, NW1. Next week, we'll be commemorating the 50th anniversary of perhaps the most notorious, the most disturbing and one of the most fiendishly clever psychological studies ever conducted on human participants. The milgram experiment which looked at how far people will go in obeying authority figures you will listen to the program i repeat you will listen ah but it only works when it comes from an authority figure material world was presented by quentin cooper the producer was martin redfern There won't be an edition of The World Tonight at 10 o'clock due to industrial action by the National Union of Journalists. Instead, Peter Donaldson will have an extended summary of the day's news. And then John Wilson will give Michael Heseltine the chance to replay his life as captured in the BBC Sound Archive. He was one of the leading politicians of the 1980s and 90s and played a pivotal role in the fall of the then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, meeting myself coming back at 10 o'clock. And before that, here on BBC Radio 4, Stephen Fry tackles the perennially provocative subject of language and class
2: in Fry's English Delight. The scene, Verdun. Private Higgins is dying in his commanding officer's arms. Oh, sir, take me messages to me folks, dear old
0: lady, sir. I say, Higgins, there's a good chap, man, don't talk. Oh, sir,
2: cough, cough... Please, please, would you take me messages to me folks in Tyrell blood, sir? Oh, Higgins, there's a good chap. Don't talk, man, don't talk. Oh, but sir, what about me messages? Higgins, don't talk, man. Why, sir? Because you're so common. Politically incorrect joke courtesy of actor Nigel Pegram. And straight away we're in the realm of assumptions about status and pretension and supposed superiority and presumed inferiority, too, all just because of the way we speak. It's almost a hundred years since George Bernard Shaw wrote that no Englishman could open his mouth without another despising him. But it still seems almost impossible to talk about language as an indicator of social class in the United Kingdom without somebody else assuming all kinds of prejudices are being aired, validated even, and reaching forthwith for the large bottle marked Umbridge. Yes, that's just under the one labelled Outrage. The two are often confused. Not that I am in any position to pretend any natural identification with the lower orders, sounding as I do. It's obvious that mine is the unmistakable voice of a toff. But I didn't always sound like this. No, I used to sound a lot posher.
1: Stephen has been
3: animadverting about the, uh, the love-hate relationship which seems to exist between those two countries.
2: At <laughs> <laughs> the average party, tickets are sold for a place in the queue to talk to the American. Not because Americans are more than ordinarily intelligent, attractive or fascinating, but because they know instinctively the right way to an Anglo-Saxon's heart. The one thing all English people want to hear from Americans is that they have a marvellous accent, and it's the one thing most Americans are prepared to tell them. Oh, good Lord, was that really me? Well, that was what I sounded like about 30 years ago, somewhat more refined than what I am now. A rare recording of a programme I took part in in around 1983, a late-night talk show hosted by Ned Sherin, a man whose own speech had made that journey in reverse during his lifetime. I suppose the goal then was RP, Received Pronunciation, the quintessential sound of the BBC in years gone by. But for my generation and upbringing, the voice trajectory has been relentlessly downwards. And I'm not the only one whose speech delivery has been levelled out during that period. Think of how much Mrs. Thatcher's voice changed. Think of Her Majesty the Queen. Think how Tony Blair would adjust his speech to curry favour with the hoi polloi. His appearance with Catherine Tate is a perhaps extreme but telling example.
0: Look at my face. Right, what are
4: you
2: doing? Is my face bothered? No, wait a minute. Does my face look bothered though? No, are you messing with my mind? Face, bothered. Top short, centre parts, trainers, small feet. Does it mean we aren't bothered by class issues anymore? Or that it's all just a lot more subtle? Well, it's time to bring in someone who knows whereof they speak. Dr. Julius Snell is a lecturer in sociolinguistics at King's College London. So, Julia, is there actually any hard evidence that we still judge each other by the way we speak? I mean, obviously, regionally is one thing, but by the choice of words and expressions in terms of class?
4: Absolutely. What we find is that when people evaluate where's of speaking these are social rather than linguistic judgments. So people are actually evaluating the imagined speakers of those varieties rather than the linguistic properties of the speech itself. And this is very much linked to social class. So one of the key findings of language attitudes research is that non-standard varieties of English, and in particular urban vernaculars like Glaswegian and Brummie, um, and ethnically marked varieties... These are consistently rated law for traits like intelligence, competence, confidence, leadership. And this, of course, is because ratings along these dimensions reflect the dominant social status of the so-called superior groups in society who tend to speak standard English with an RP accent.
2: Yes, we always need someone to look down on as well. So there are people looking down on the only only is Essex or they're looking down on the, the way gypsies dress for marriages or or whatever it is. There's a slightly unpleasant taint of snobbery in a lot of reality television, isn't there?
4: There is. And this is linked of course to the cultural stereotype of the chav as well. Yeah. Uh, so in Britain we may not always talk in terms of social Social class, but we're quite good at finding other terms to talk about it. So if you take the stereotype of the chav, this has been exaggerated for comedic purposes. So the character of Vicky Pollard in Little Britain, for example. Yeah. And language is very much part of this social stereotype. So Vicky's language exaggerates the kinds of characteristics that we think are common to working-class teenagers' speech. So Vicky's language is permeated with what we call discourse markers, mm. things like, yeah, right, but like, anyway, which don't appear to add anything to the referential content of the yes. speech. What the
2: Germans call flickwort, the uh, little little flick words Absolutely, yeah.
4: which actually yeah. do quite important work in real language, but which are made to seem inarticulate and incoherent Her language uses lots of non-standard grammatical features and so on. So yeah. if we take actual research into teenagers speech, yeah. this isn't really how they speak, but the perception that this is the case leads to these kinds of comedic exaggerations. Thank you
2: I might want to come back to you in just a few moments, Julia, if I may, but before that, you and non-you. A familiar expression to many, but new to most people under the age of about 40, I'd reckon. There was a famous essay which crystallized the whole debate about class and language, which Nancy Mitford later took up, and we have lived with the great you and non-you divide ever since. That original essay, by linguist Alan Ross, appeared in 1954, and echoes of it still reverberate. There was a very famous list of word variants, one set very you, or upper, the other Not the kind of things the upper classes would use at all. Very non-you. For instance, it was non-you to say... Serviette. You to use...
0: Table napkin.
2: Spectacles.
0: Glasses. Toilet. Lavatory.
2: Rich. Wealthy. Pudding. Sweet. Mirror. Looking glass. Radio. Wireless. But it was also a matter of pronunciation. Just... Jest. Catch.
0: Catch. Really? Really. Tire. Tar. Lion. Lawn. Forehead. Forehead. Handkerchief. Handkerchief.
2: Ride. Raid. Pretentious, perhaps? A little affected? Worth remembering that some philologists believe raid is how Shakespeare would have pronounced R-I-D-E, though, so we shouldn't perhaps be too quick to mock. Or mock. Expressions were also thought something of a giveaway.
1: They've a lovely home.
0: They've a very nice house.
2: And what one did in there is important. The bathroom is the place. To take a bath, distinctly non you, whereas to
0: have one's bath
2: would be the you thing. Manners, of course, are a minefield. Pleased to meet you. It was viewed as a frequent non-you response to the greeting. How do you do? You speakers were expected just to repeat the greeting. How do you do? And to reply to the greeting. How do you do? With... Quite well, thank you. Was definitely non-you. You speakers at, or ate... Lunch. In the middle of the day. Luncheon was seen as old-fashioned you even then, and... Dinner in the evening. If a new U-speaker felt that what was being eaten was a travesty of a dinner, it may appropriately have been referred to as... Supper. Non-U-speakers, on the other hand, had their... Dinner. ...in the middle of the day, along with children and dogs. The interesting thing about examining that controversy today is that then it was accepted that the lower classes may have tried to emulate their betters, pronunciations, and deliveries. But the unspoken assumption was that this would almost always be a failure, the hyacinth-bucket syndrome. And there was hardly a hint of a suggestion of a scintilla of a possibility that the upper orders might try to imitate the lower ones... And that, as we have heard, is not the case today. Sociolinguist Julia Snell again. So, Julia, is there such a thing, if you are British English, as sounding classless?
4: I'm not sure that there is a classless voice. I mean, we talk about, or people, especially in the media, have spoken about estuary English, and the idea that this is somehow takes up the middle ground between cockney on the one hand and received pronunciation on the other... But actually, some of the features of Estuary English, things like glottal stops, these are actually features that we might associate with a modern RP. As a linguist, what I like to do is describe what's going on in the language rather than necessarily prescribe how people should behave linguistically.
2: Yes, it's a strange thing, but with language, somehow, there will always be people who believe there is a right and a wrong. And it's... no matter how many professors, no matter how many lexicographers, no matter how many linguists and philologists they listen to whose profession and passion, like mine, is language, telling them there is no right and wrong, they'll always say, yes, there are jolly well is, and they'll write books about it.
4: Well, we live in a standard language culture and where virtually everyone subscribes to the idea of correctness. Yeah. So one linguistic form is right, another is wrong. People believe this is just common sense, that it's an inherent part of language. Of course it isn't. As speakers, we confer prestige onto linguistic varieties, and we tend to confer prestige onto those varieties considered to be associated with the higher social classes.
2: And has the wheel come full circle now? Uh, Should I, if I wanted myself to be more successful as a broadcaster, should I, like Tony Blair or or David Cameron, should I soften the slightly obvious public school articulations that come out of my mouth and say, look, now, listen, come on, you know, a bit more, a little bit more like that. A lot of stops that uh, that uh, Jenny Blair was fond of doing. Sh- should I do that?
4: Well, I think you're right that. Received pronunciation is perhaps evaluated slightly differently today. So it has kind of negative connotations to do with uh, elitism, exclusiveness, inaccessibility, which therefore some people modify the way they talk. And you mentioned Tony Blair, for example. So a politician can now modify their accent. They can throw in a few glottal stops in order to try and convince the electorate that actually they're not very upper class, they're really just one of us, and therefore they can talk on our behalf. But the public are pretty savvy, and often they will pick up on these performances and negatively evaluate them as inauthentic. So it's a very fine line to walk, I think. And um, I think perhaps if you started talking like that, Stephen, the public would uh, smell a rat. (laughs) I think
2: they probably would. So the new hierarchies might not exactly resemble the old ones, but the new ones exist nonetheless... Victoria Mather writes the social stereotypes column in the Daily Telegraph, which neatly skewers the speech patterns of all kinds of social groups. Actually, her reading of sociolinguistic hierarchies might please you, Julia. It's bluntly anthropological.
3: They have a code, of course, which is all about where you went to school. The upper classes have this code because it's tribal, and everything that human beings do is tribal. So it doesn't actually matter whether you went to what-not comprehensive, or you went to Eton, you will have a tribal network imprint. I don't think any longer people say, as they would do in sort of Lady Bracknell tones, when you bring um, a girlfriend or a boyfriend home, do we know her people? (laughs) I don't know that that happens all that much.
2: What do they talk about in this quaint, exclusive manner of theirs?
3: The chaps talk about football, and of course they talk about... Golf, which used to be golf, but I've I think Gof's gone. <laughs> I think Gof's gone off. My grandmother always used to refer to laundry as opposed to laundry. I rather like wolf actually. But then everybody talks about golf, whether you live in Sheffield or you live in Sandringham. It's just you belong to different clubs. So if you are a Rotarian in Sheffield, you're slightly unlikely to play at Swindley Forest. Most people who actually do belong to Swindley Forest say, oh, it's so marvellous, because you know when you play golf there, you can take the dogs as well.
2: Mm, let's not get into the animals' aspects. Let's just keep to the human pedigrees. Born into it, right? Education. First it's the prep school, then the public school. What do they do after finishing school? They don't go to finishing school any longer.
3: That's all over. They do go to university. And... They read binge drinking just like everybody else. So that's, and they party very hard. Party, 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 party.
2: The upper echelons are beginning to sound rather disconcertingly like everybody else. What's the point of an aristocracy if all they can perform are lowest common denominator antics? At least they have better names than the rest of the nation.
3: The age of the double barrelled name is really rather faded. I mean, you think of Ranolf, Tristleton, Wickham, Fiennes. He sort of seems to have come down to ran fines. I don't think it's very smart to be triple or double-barrelled. Isabella Anstruther Gough Coulthorpe, who is a girlfriend of Prince William and is an actress, I mean, she calls herself Isabella Coulthorpe. The new
2: aristocrats,
3: if we might call them that, shed those trappings very quickly.
2: But isn't the whole class thing based on a conceit elaborated over millennia, a hierarchy of prestige with the royal family at the very apex?
3: It's interesting about the royal family, there was a a huge controversy at the time of um, the wedding of Prince of Wales to Diana Spencer, saying that she was much grander than the royal family, which indeed she was. Much better lineage, much better breeding, don't forget, the royal family are hugely compromised by having German ancestry. It's not a good look. And Prince Charles practically comes up knee-high to a grasshopper. The Queen, of course, bless her. I mean, we never want her to die, and we think she's absolutely wonderful and couldn't be better in any possible way. But she's stocky little Hanoverian.
2: Yep. Yeah, goodbye. Goodbye. Sorry, yes, I was just bidding farewell there to Victoria Mather's chances of getting a damehood any time soon. But just who are the elite of the elite? Who, within the top ranks, actually are the arbiters of taste and standards of speech?
3: Who are the arbiters of taste? But I think we all do hark back a bit to Nancy Mitford and P.G. Woodhouse, because it was such a golden age of tribalism. And what you said said more about you than cash ever could. So you could be really poor and shabby chic, but you could still have immaculate breeding. And also you could be rude in a much better way.
2: Victoria Mather mentioned just there the blessed P.G. Woodhouse. And when I played Jeeves in the television series of Jeeves and Worcester many years ago, there was some concern about getting the character's accents correct. No matter that the actor who played Bertie, uh, I forget his name just at the moment, I think he's some sort of musician or hospital porter. Anyway, him, you know who I mean. He had, as it happens, been to Eton College. But despite Hugh's authentic Etonian upbringing, there were grumbly letters to the papers accusing him of sounding suburban. Penny Dyer is one of the current top voice coaches. She's worked on films such as The Queen, TV series like Downton Abbey, and works regularly in London theatres. How does she go about coaching today's actors to reproduce the authentic upper-class accent from the past, or even in the present?
0: I don't even call it one voice because there are so many different levels of standard English. And so there's different levels of toff. And if you listen to the modern, prestigious perceived pronunciation, you'd be listening to people like William and Harry, wouldn't you? And if you listen to William and Harry, they give you different different versions of toff. You can still hear this sort of very dark um sound often you often that feeling of space inside the mouth which sort of says something about size of space in which they've possibly grown up in the more up the social ranks you went the more likely you were to actually grow up in a house that was large (laughs) and if you grow up somewhere which is large with a lot of land around it then your voice learns how to fill that space
2: now there's an intriguing insight that the sound of the voice possibly owes something to the physical conditions under which it was produced. And they were used to issuing orders to the servants, of course, so those imperious tones came as a result of the silver spoon in their mouths.
0: In the 20s and 30s, there were certain sounds which you absolutely don't hear today, and one of them is absolutely. You know, the fact that one had much more of that black cat that sat on the mat, having a nap, has flat ears, So that would be one of the classic sounds that you'd start to, to find, which is that it's not an ah, it's an eh. People spoke in those days by much more with withholding the emotion in, not expressing through the emotion, expressing much more through the consonants, which gave you the sense of what you were hearing. So you would also say to them, don't forget to keep the whys a little shorter. So you spring off the y's. Lovely. City. It's a pretty and ugly city. They spoke in statements. They often would ask a question as if they didn't expect an answer. or In fact, they already knew the answer, they're just being polite by asking it. So the inflection would often go down. So did you have a good holiday? I know you had a good holiday, but I'm going to ask you anyway. (laughs) And you'd certainly have to slap down the rising inflection. And you'd be saying to them, don't forget, of course, in those days they used their L's and they used more T because the T is like an emotional weapon. It's very useful. Sometimes it's good to say you're late. And sometimes it's good to say you're late. Certainly in those days they wouldn't have said you're late. (laughs) That would be too modern.
2: (laughs) But even in the 20s and 30s, the barriers could be modishly
0: porous. I mean, it used to be the East End and the West End, didn't it? And one would ate the other and hence why gel went from being gel down the east end to gel in the west end and they sort of dropped it and picked it up and picked it up and dropped it depending on what was fashionable now it's more fashionable to talk down to sound cool to drop our t's to generally let the vowel sounds slop around in the bottom of our pants there's always been a hierarchy of accents, but that becomes more and more a thing of the past as accents actually begin to, in some respects, not in all respects, homogenise and come together you know, as communication leaps around so quickly. Because language is shifting so fast, I would say finding the sound of 50 years ago seems more like finding a sound of 100 years ago these days.
2: Perhaps the trouble with this old debate is that these issues always seem to be ventilated in a metropolitan context. They take on a very different hue if seen from elsewhere. Yorkshireman Ian Macmillan, born just a year or so after the famous you and non-you argument, is well known to radio listeners as a poet, presenter of The Verb on Radio 3 and a panellist on programmes like Just a Minute. He also wrote a guide to his native Yorkshire dialect called Chelp and Chunter. It's Chelp and Chunter. How much does Ian think our attitudes towards class and language have changed in that time? And what about place as a factor?
5: I think over my lifetime there's been a gradual erosion of the purity of the language where I live. I'm 55 years old and I think that over the last 30 years there's been a dilution of it. A lot of the villages near me were pit villages, were simply places that had their own space and their own language so that uh, in certain parts of Doncaster um, an old pushbike was called a grod. Language didn't move very far. And there was always the the idea that somebody who spoke like me, you felt that when you opened your mouth, standing behind you was everybody who ever talked like you. And that was all right. There was a huge queue of them behind you and you felt kind of safe in that. But then on the other hand, at school, Mrs Yelland, one of my teachers, we were talking about birds. I referred to the word Shep. I said, there's a Shep. And she said, even Mr Yelland sometimes says Shep. She said, but you mean a Starling, don't you? And I said, yes. And she said, you must say Starling, because Shep is the wrong word. I said, but it, but it is a Shep. She went, yes, but it's a Starling. And that was so interesting. Mrs Yelland, who spoke a bit like when Molly Sugden used to pretend to be posh, it was a bit like that. You suddenly realized that there was a another code out there that you had to use if you were going to get anywhere.
2: Better speech, or what was understood as better speech in those days, was seen as a way to a better life. Just 40 or 50 years ago, that sense of superiority and inferiority was still indissolubly linked with how you sounded.
5: We had a careers thing at school, and it was that one, just like something out of Kez, where they go, oh, you're a clever lad, you can go down to the pit officers rather than going down the pit, but you must learn to speak properly. And in the 60s in Barnsley, elocution teachers made quite a good living. They took people away. A friend of mine got taken to elocution lessons and he came back speaking this very clipped. Strange thing, when his man was in the room, when his man went out, he spoke like us. And he ended up working in a glider factory. And I thought, isn't that interesting? There's the height of something. Somehow, in my poetic way, I thought his language soars. His language soars like the gliders he makes. And I've been thinking about this a lot and I think it's only in the last four or five years, I think, that I've been able to say the word lunch without inverted commas. And whenever I say it still, there's still a little flat-capped man on my shoulder who says, who the hell do you think you are? Who do you think you are saying lunch? I still think that the word lunch can't be said with the kind of use that I say. It's kind of lunch. I can't say it's lunch. You can't say you get lunch. I'm going for lunch. You sound like an Alan Bennett character, don't you? Going, I'm going for lunch. I find myself saying at lunchtime to my wife, I think we'll have a bit of something. Neither of us can bring ourselves to say the word lunch. And we kind of say it and we go, lunch. And we, it's so interesting that, isn't it? That I think that it's still a posh thing to say. And when people say, we're having our supper, I agree with Stuart McConney on this. He says when he's invited round for supper, he thinks you're going to have some chips on a tray in front of the telly. Whereas some people have their supper when I have my tea and they have their lunch when I have my dinner. And people think, I'm putting this on, that it's not true, that I'm living in some kind of Ilkley Moabartat fantasy, but I'm not.
2: I really am not. If the way we talk is so central to our own sense of who we are, then to make a profound change to our speech can be interpreted as a profound betrayal of our roots and of our very selves. But today,
5: as everything is so mobile, where do you look to for authenticity? Well, of course, looking back, the authentic voice was given to you by the place you lived, by the shape of the landscape, by the industries that you worked in, or your father worked in, or your mother worked in, and now with that having gone, it's, it is harder, I guess, to find a linguistic identity, but it hangs on, it really does hang on. I'm lucky enough to visit a lot of village halls, I do village hall performances, and there in the depths of Lincolnshire, or in Norfolk, or in Suffolk, or in Worcestershire, you still hear the accent, the language, twang it's not really I think maybe what it is is that we can choose to use it if we want we can be our own elocution list. the young people of today will think that if I can speak in the way they speak on the television in the way the newsreader speaks then that will mean that I'm kind of prosperous that I can be in an office and won't be laughed at that I can ask for a ticket on a train and people won't know instantly what my dad does for a living. So there's that odd thing that you you want to see yourself as being somehow, you're doing all right. And if you're doing all right, then that's reflected in this kind of locutions that you use, I think. I began on local radio back in the eighties. And it was interesting that my voice was like this. And I would get letters. I got a a man accosted me on the street in Barnsley. And he said, I can't talk like that on wireless. And I said, but I'm talking like thee. They said, yeah, but they can't do it on wireless. That's not that long ago. That's the late 80s. Did he say wireless? That's an old U word,
2: isn't it? Yet it sounds perfectly authentic in this context. And that simply is the key. Authenticity. Appropriateness. If it sounds right, it is right.
5: And I speak like this, and I'm on Radio 3, and I'm on Radio 4, and I'm on Radio 2... And that has to be a good thing, that people like me and people like Andy Kershaw can be on Radio 3, that's a good thing. But I still, my friend said to me, um, his, his friend's mother said to him, he puts it on, you know. He doesn't talk like that in the house. The people assume that in the house I talk like Prince Charles. But I think what would be more interesting is if in the house Prince Charles talked like me.
1: Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry. The producer was Ian Gardhouse and it was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4. That was the last in the series, though you can hear more of that interview with Stephen and Dr. Julius Snell and other interviews from the series on the Radio 4 website. Quick look at the weather. Outbreaks of rain will clear northwards during tomorrow morning, leaving many places dry. Scattered showers are expected to follow fairly quickly early in the afternoon, turning heavy and possibly thundery from the Midlands northwards. The southeast of England looks set to see the best of the dry and bright weather, feeling warm and humid once again.